Today, we continue in a brand new series that we started last week called Build the Wall, and it's walking through the book of Nehemiah. So let me give you a quick recap. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, you kind of can figure out where we are. And, and if you were here last week, it's always good to remind ourselves of where we've been and what we've learned. So as we began this last Sunday, um, we didn't really start in the book of Nehemiah. We started back before Nehemiah wrote his story because every story has a backstory. And what we learned is that God's people had consistently over and over again failed to obey God. And as a result, God allowed the natural consequences of those choices to actually happen. They lost their homes and they lost their country. And they were taken in to captivity. Well, that's not good. But God is good. And God had said, hey, if, if that happens, but you return your heart to me, if you turn back toward me, you know what? I'll bring you back. And that's what happened. There were people that began to seek God again. And God said, all right, I've heard you and I know, I know what I said. And so without any real explanation other than God being sovereign and intervening, the king of the conquered people allowed some of them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their city. Work had begun. And so far, they had been able to rebuild the temple. They'd re been able to rebuild the altars. But the walls and the gates were still torn down and burned down and in piles of rubble. Which for them at that time meant that there was no protection. They had no protection whatsoever. They had no identity. They had no vision. And it was beginning to feel very hopeless. You ever had that moment when, when you start in a direction and it feels like it's all going good, but then you, you run into a hurdle and an obstacle and you just can't seem to get around it. And the longer that takes, the more hopeless it begins to feel. Like you're never gonna get there. And that's what had set in for the Israelites, for the Jewish people who had returned to Jerusalem. And that's the condition that they were in when Nehemiah heard this report from his brother. And as soon as, soon as he heard that report, he felt the, the overwhelming weight of what should be but what was not. He felt the burden that something should be done. But rather than make a rash decision, here's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah says that he immediately began to fast and to pray. He began to, to seek God for wisdom and direction. And that's where we left off last week. As he was praying, he began to remind himself of who God was. Man, I've got a God who can, who can do anything. And he confessed, he confessed deeply. Not, he didn't just confess for his country. He didn't just confess for his family. And, and you know what? Confessing for somebody else is easy, isn't it? Well, Lord, I know that our country has done some bad stuff. Lord, I know there are people in my family that have done some bad things. We don't mind confessing for somebody else. We're just not too crazy about confessing for ourselves. But Nehemiah not only confessed for others, he confessed deeply his own sin before God, and then he reminded God of his promises. And let's pick up the story there after we open in prayer. Father, as we get into the book of Nehemiah, as we open your word today, God, I, I just pray that through the words of the scripture, through what you have laid on my own heart this morning, that God, you will help us to see how marvelous, how wonderful is your love for us. God, help us to see with fresh eyes today. Help us to hear with new ears. 
Soften our hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. All right. So open your Bible to Nehemiah if you haven't already. So we read through most of the first chapter last Sunday, and we're going to pick up the story at the very end of his prayer in chapter, or verse 11 of chapter 1. Here's what Nehemiah says. He says, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's chief architect and mechanical engineer. Which is really handy when he's praying about how to rebuild the wall. I mean, it really comes in handy when you're the chief architect and the mechanical engineer for the king of Persia. Except that's not what it says, does it? What does it say he was? He was a cupbearer. A cupbearer? What the heck is a cupbearer talking about fixing walls in a city hundreds of miles away? Because he's praying to God like something should be done, right? He's praying to God like, God, what can I do? Which would make all the sense in the world if he actually was some sort of an architect or some sort of an engineer in those days. But he tells us that he is just a cupbearer. Now, let me hit the pause button for just a second. Have you ever felt a burden for something that you think should be done? I mean, you look around in the world that you're in, you look around your family, you look around your business, you look around your church, and you feel this burden for something that should be done. And you know with every fiber of your being, this needs to get done. But you look at yourself and you go, it's not me. You ever felt that way? Come on, raise your hand. Almost everybody in here. And you know why? Because we look at our qualifications and we go, I'm not qualified. We, we look at what we've learned and we go, I'm not prepared for that. I see this thing that should be done. I feel it with every fiber of my being, but God, I'm not the one. Can I share this with you this morning? It is not your education that matters. It's the source of your inspiration. I need to remind you that Jesus, when he came, he did not pick the 12 most educated guys that he could find. He did not pick the 12 guys with all of the letters behind their name that they hung diplomas and plaques on the wall, said, look how smart I am. He picked 12 guys that nobody else wanted. You know why he picked them? Because they could hear his voice and they understood the source of their inspiration was something beyond themselves. It's not your education this morning, church. It's not how much you think you know or you don't know. If your inspiration is coming from God Almighty, check this out, you are qualified. Nehemiah says, I was a cupbearer. What is that? It means basically he's a, he's a glorified waiter. What he would do was before the king would eat, he would, he would taste the food and he would, he would drink of whatever uh, beverage they were having. Now, that doesn't sound like too bad a job, except he could die on the spot. Now, I know some of us have been to places with somebody in our family or friends and you've had a meal and you think to yourself, if I ever have to eat this again, I will die. Don't say who, because we don't want to offend anybody here. But this is not that. Because Nehemiah, as the cupbearer, literally could die. Because what you may not know is in those days, there was always a wrestling match for power. And it was not uncommon at all for some 
king or queen to have poison put in their drink or their food. Because if they, somebody can kill them off, then I got a shot at the, at the throne. And so before the king or the, or the queen would eat, a cub bear would eat the food and drink the drink. And if they didn't fall dead on the spot, okay, everybody eat up. And if he did fall dead on the spot, then you'd call another cupbearer. Well, you want to talk about being disposable. How would you like that job? Next. Well, why are you hiring? Well, the last guy died on the spot. Well, I don't want that job. Too bad you're going to have it. So there was a bad side to being the cupbearer. But here's the good side. As a cupbearer, he had access to and standing with the king. How many average, ordinary, everyday people get standing with and access to the king? So here's Nehemiah who's nothing but a cupbearer, but because of that, he's got entrance and the ear of the king. Now, if you were here when we did our ebook series on the book of Ephesians, you might remember something that was very important. If you want to turn over to it real quickly in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to remind you of this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul said, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk on them. If you were here, maybe you remember that I had a set of golf clubs up here and I told you a story of when I'd gone to Hawaii and I, had to, I got the chance to play some golf and there was a club that I wanted to use and I couldn't find it. And so because I couldn't find what I needed, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until like two holes left that I found that it had been in my bag the whole time just with the wrong cover on it. And the point of that was, is that God knew who you were before you ever drew your first breath, and he created you and planned you for certain things before you ever began to walk on the earth. And what God has created you for, he has prepared you for. What you need to do the job that he has burdened you in your heart for, he has prepared you for. He has qualified you for. I don't care what is behind your name in letters or education. And he continues to pray at the very end of that prayer. He says, I pray that you grant me mercy in the sight of this man. This, this man, like man, inside of this man, well, this man just happened to be king. Lord, give me mercy inside of this man. I think that's really important. And you know why? Because we need to remember that even people in positions of power and authority are still people. And God is still God. And so Nehemiah didn't say, God, give me, give me mercy in the presence of the king. Give me mercy in the sight of this man. Let me remind you of a psalm that many of you know, Psalm 27, verse 1. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Who am I going to be afraid of? Man, if God is on my side, who can be against me? When God has put a burden on your heart and called you to something, don't worry about everybody else. Whom shall I fear? Now, I want to speak especially to my teenagers right now, but this is true even for our adults. We live in a world that is increasingly hostile to a Christian worldview. And political correctness would tell you to keep your faith to yourself, keep your mouth quiet and go on about your business and leave that somewhere in your church or your house, but you don't take that out in the public square. 
And whether you're an adult or a teenager this morning, you need to hear me. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter what their position is. It doesn't matter how much noise they make. They're still people and God is still God. And we need to raise his name and lift his standard no matter who is in our earshot. He continues in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, beginning in verse 1. Came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I'd never been sad in his presence before. And therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad, since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And so I became dreadfully afraid. So he tells us that this was in the month of Nisan, which may not mean a whole lot to you, but it means that this is actually four months after Nehemiah first got this news about Jerusalem. Now, we don't really know what's gone on in those four months, but I'm pretty sure based on what we read in Nehemiah chapter one, that Nehemiah had been going faithfully before the Lord for those four months, praying, continuing to fast, praying, fasting, praying, fasting, seeking God for guidance and wisdom. So after four months of that, he's in the king's presence. And it's really important that you notice his demeanor and his disposition because he says he was sad. That may not sound like a big deal, but it was a very big deal because he said, I'd never been sad in the king's presence before. You know why? Because it wasn't allowed. You couldn't go in the king's presence with a sad countenance, dragging yourself around, not allowed. In fact, if you did that, you were risking death. You think Nehemiah knew that? Of course he did. He'd been working in the, in the palace for many, many years. He had never been sad in the king's presence because it was not okay. And he knew that if he allowed himself to appear sad before the king, he was taking a risk. Church, to follow Jesus is usually not the easiest thing in the world to do. You know, it always seems, it it, it amazes me that almost every teenager I've ever known, including myself when I was that age, at some point in your life as a teenager, or maybe it doesn't happen when you're a teenager, maybe it's a young adult, but somewhere, most of us, not all, but most of us, we we wanna step out on our own and be different, right? You remember that? I don't want anybody to, I don't want to follow the crowd. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I want to make my own way. Can I tell you the bravest life choice you will ever make is to stand out and be counted for Jesus. It's the bravest thing you will ever do is to stand up, stand out, and be counted for Jesus because it is a risk. And Nehemiah said he took the risk. Now, Here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible doesn't, you know, it doesn't sugarcoat stuff. His reaction, in spite of the fact that he knew that the king was still a man and God was still God, in spite of all that, his reaction, his gut reaction shows how human and how real he was. He got scared. He became dreadfully afraid. Now, sometimes we can know all the right things. We can know that a man is man, a people are people, and God is God, and I serve a God who is able to do all things. But here's here's where the rubber meets the road. When the moment arrives, when the situation presents itself, will we speak and be heard for the Lord, or will we allow our fear to keep us quiet? You need to understand something this morning that when you allow fear to rule you, you make your fear more powerful than your God.
That's kind of a stunning statement, isn't it? When, when we decide that we're not going to take a step, when we decide that we're not going to do something because we're too afraid, we have just made our fear more powerful than our God. Now, I want you to understand something this morning, that faith is not the absence of fear. Nehemiah said he was dreadfully afraid. Did that make him not a follower of God? Did that make him not a believer in who God was? No, because that is a normal, natural human emotion. Faith is not the absence of fear, but it is the courage to act in the presence of fear. Because my God is bigger than my fear. So what would... What would a cupbearer, <laughs> what would a cupbearer do in this situation? His neck is on the line now. Should he apologize? Should he go, oh, my king, I am so sorry. When, when we are given that moment where we have a chance to speak up on behalf of God, so that's what a lot of us want to do. We want to shriek back, shrink back and go, Oh, I'm sorry, you know, I, I should have I not said anything or I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have been here. You know, you just go on about your business, my bad. What would Nehemiah do? Verse three, Nehemiah said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city that in the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. And the king said to me, what do you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. Wow. In spite of his fear, he decided to step right into the situation. And he said, why shouldn't I be sad? He didn't say, oh my goodness, King, I'm so sorry, my, you know, things are going bad and I'm just having a bad day and, and I, I, I hope you'll understand. Why shouldn't I be sad? That's pretty audacious, wouldn't you say? When you're talking to the king, you could say, how dare you speak to me that way? Off with his head. And that's not an overstatement. That happened all the time. How dare you speak to the king that way? But he stepped right into his fear and he, and he worked through his faith and he said, why shouldn't I? And here's what's amazing. The king said, well, what do you want? Wow. What do you want? You know what that tells me? It tells me that the king, although he way, way, way outranked Nehemiah, Although Nehemiah was nothing but a, a peon compared to him, he saw Nehemiah as a man of character and integrity. So hear me on this. Your character and integrity that you display today will be the foundation for resources and way forward tomorrow. The character and integrity that you display today will be the door that opens up opportunity for you tomorrow. Nehemiah didn't show up one day in the king's presence and just throw all this out and the king, and the king go, well, okay, whatever you want, Nehemiah. No, no, no. Nehemiah had earned his respect day after day after day after day. And you show up to work, you show up to school, you get up in the morning as a stay-at-home mom and you go, who cares, who's watching, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Because somebody is always watching. And the day that you need God's grace and the favor of the world is the day that the character and the integrity that you displayed day after day when you didn't think anybody was watching, that's the day that pays off. And then I find it interesting that after he's asked, well, what do you want? Nehemiah says, well, I prayed to the God of heaven. 
He prayed again. Can we all agree that we talk way more than we should and we pray far less than we should? Now, I know there's a lot of people out here that struggle with prayer. And this is a generalization, but I've been in the army. I've been all over the country, so I know it's a generalization, but it's pretty true because I've seen it. Men especially struggle with prayer. Well, I don't know how to have this long, flowery conversation. Oh, God, thou art, thou shalt. Oh, the woe is me. I don't know how to do that. Fine. You don't need to know because that's not prayer. When people pray in public and try to impress you, it's because they ain't been praying behind the scenes. Ooh. I remember a story, and I'm just going to throw this one in for free. You won't have to pay for this one. I remember a story of, of a, a, and this is a true story of, of a guy, and I, I don't remember the name of the, the well-known evangelist, but he was sort of being mentored by this evangelist, and he was going to go on this, on this incredible crusade with this evangelist, and, and he was the first night in the hotel room. Uh, they were sharing a room, and he could not wait to hear how the evangelist would finish his day and, and what kind of prayer he would pray. And he thought, man, this is going to be such a great learning opportunity, such a great experience. And so he, he just, he was anticipating that moment. It's going to like probably going to be one of the greatest prayers I've ever heard. And, and you know what the evangelist prayed? Good night, Lord. Well, he was totally disillusioned. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, I've been, I've been waiting all this time to hear this great prayer. And he said, what, is that it? Is that all you're going to pray? And you know what the evangelist told him? He said, well, what you may not realize is I've been talking to God all day long and he's tired of hearing me now. So we're just going to go to bed. That's the kind of prayer Nehemiah had right here. Sometimes the greatest, most profound prayer that you can pray is only 10 or 15 seconds. So Nehemiah went back to the Lord again in spite of the fact that he'd spent months praying and seeking God. We can never pray too much. Verse five, he says to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Rebuild, like rebuild it? Are you kidding me? I mean, you're a cupbearer. But send me to rebuild it. And the king said to me and the queen sitting beside him also, and, and by the way, I'm a little fascinated by this because he is a cupbearer, right? He's not an architect. The king didn't say, you've lost your mind, Nehemiah. He looked at him and said, well, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? You know why? Because he had such confidence in the Lord that the king could see it. And he didn't question how, he just said, how long will it be? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. And furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Wow, man, you talk about a bold request. Church, listen, listen. If you're gonna trust God, trust him all the way. You know why? Because if he's able to do half the job, then isn't he able to do the whole job? Now, I don't know about you, but I can, I can confess in my own life, there have been times that I know that I've needed certain things, I've needed resources, and when the opportunity gets them, presents itself to me, it's, it's a half ask. You ever done that? Well, the opportunity to, to meet all the needs that God has laid on your heart is before you, and instead of just jumping all in and saying, God, I'm all in, I'm gonna trust you, sort of halfway go there. Well, you know, um, 
we could use this, but we could get by with this. You ever done that? We, we need this, but if you, if you could do this, this would be good. Because, you know, I'm sure God, God can figure out a way to make it work. We can figure out a way to make it work. If you can just do this little. Church, if we're going to trust God with this little bit, then let's trust him with it all. Amen? Let's stop apologizing for what God has laid on our heart. Let's just jump all in and go there. That's the God who's calling us out of the boat, says, come on, you want to walk on the water, get out of the boat, let's go. But I also love about this that when he, he, he asked for all this stuff, it means that he had a plan. He wasn't winging it, church. He wasn't winging it. He had a plan. You know why he had a plan? Because he'd been praying. He'd ask God for wisdom. He'd ask God for insight. He asked God to give him a way forward for this enormous task. And then he leveraged not only his position, but he leveraged the position of the king. Wow, you talk about bold. I mean, it's like, it's one thing if, if we, you know, kind of see what's in our, our bag that we can do. But what we don't understand sometimes about the clubs that are in our bag, it's not just who we are, it's who we know. And Nehemiah understood that. And he said, hey, king, guess what? You know these guys, you know that guy, and you can give them authority that I can't, so that here's what you need to do. And you know what the king did? He did it. Verse 9, I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me, and when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Now, I just want to make one comment about that. Just know, just know, Take it to the bank that when you start to move in a forward direction for the cause of Christ, there's going to be somebody watching you that is not pleased with it. When changes start happening in your life and you begin to move in a direction that honors God and takes you from where you've been to where God wants you to be, there's going to be somebody that ain't happy about it. Just be prepared for it. Mark it down. It's going to happen. So verse 11, he says, I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. In other words, he, he hadn't told anybody what his plan was. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate. And I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. And so I went up in the night by the valley, and I viewed the wall. And then I turned back, and I entered by the valley gate, and I so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priest, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. So all of this is still only with Nehemiah. You know what that means? He didn't, here's, here's Nehemiah who has been sent with the authority of the king, who's been sent with letters by the king for all the supplies that he will need to get this job done. And he didn't show up in Jerusalem and say, hey, there's a new sheriff in town. Everybody listen up. He took his time to discern, discern and ascertain whether or not he had actually and properly heard from God. He took his time. He went out. He surveyed the situation. God, I want to make sure that what I'm hearing from you is what you want me to do. So he goes out in the middle of the night and he does all that. He takes, he takes a survey. And once he was sure, 
that he had heard properly from God. Verse 17, I said to them, you see the distress that we're in. How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. There are few things that pleases the ear of God more than when his people say, let us rise up and build according to what God has directed. See, once Nehemiah evaluated the plan, once he discerned that what he had had on his heart was in fact what should be done, he shared it with others. And when God lays something on your heart, pray about it, seek him, make sure that you're hearing from him. And then once you've evaluated it, then share it with others. Talk to them about it. Wrestle with it. Understand there's going to be some people that, that are not pleased that you're moving in a direction that honors God, but get together with godly men and women that you trust. Check it out. See what they have to say. Share it with others. And if God is in it, they'll join you in the work. Now, let me share this with you, church. I, I wish I could say sometimes that I, I am this brilliant, but I'm not. But I am amazed sometimes how God orders and orchestrates events in the life of my preaching and the life of our church. Shortly after I got here, um, I began to work on a preaching calendar. And because I, I think that's, that's healthy for the church to know what's coming. I think it's healthy for the pastor to know, hey, this is, this is where God is leading us. And I don't always know why. I don't always know what's coming. I just know that's what God has laid on my heart. And so I put a preaching calendar together. So you may know, you've seen that up what's coming series. I, I announced this set of, of, of messages two or three months ago. How many of you remember that? Okay, so this has been on the, this has been on the drawing board for several months. With that being understood, let me say that sort of like Nehemiah, when I came here as, as the pastor, I wanted to get here and, and survey. God, what, what's going on here? What are you doing? What do you want us to do? What do we need to build? I didn't come with a plan, so that's not quite like Nehemiah. I didn't come with a plan. In fact, some of the search committee asked me, well, you know, uh, what do you want to do here? What's your vision? And I said, well, quite frankly, I don't, I'm not coming with a preconceived vision. I don't think that would honor the Lord because I don't have any pre-exposure to this church. So I didn't know what your needs were. I didn't know what was going on in the life of this church. I just said, I'm going to come and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to tabernacle with you. I'm going to be one of you, and I'm going to begin to, to be in the life of this church to see, God, what, what do you want us to do? Where do you want us to go? How do you want us to, to pursue you? And I'm fascinated that as this has worked itself forward, God has begun to, to declare to me and, and, and reveal to me a a very, very important paradigm shift for our church. And that's why you need to be here Wednesday and Thursday night. Like Rick said, it should be 100% participation. Now, I'm not foolish enough to think that all of you are gonna show up. I know some of you gotta work, that's fine, I get it. But it ought to be as close to 100% as we can get. This is your church. You remember in Ephesians that the work of, of the ministry, the work of the pastors and the teachers is to equip the people for the what? The work. This is your church. God has called you to be the builders in your church. 
but he called me here to, to kind of be the Nehemiah in this situation. God, what's going on here? How can we build? Listen, I can guarantee you that probably few, if any of you sit here, and this is not a criticism. This is the ebb and flow of life. But I'm probably pretty sure the very few of you in here believe that the situation that we are in right now is as good as it was eight, nine, 10 years ago. When you walked into this church on a Sunday morning, eight, nine, 10 years ago, were there this many open seats? No, 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 no. It was full all the way up in the balcony, was it not? In other words, there was a day that this church was firing on all cylinders and the name of God was being promoted throughout all of Southern Illinois. And when people heard the name of Orchardville Church, they thought God is doing something there. And they wanted to show up. You know why? Because people want to be where God's doing something. God never has abandoned this church. He has not. His hand has been on this church, but this church is not anywhere close to where God wants it to be. Are we in agreement with that? This church has so much more potential. We've seen it before. We will see it again, bless God. But there is work to do, amen. And there are some walls in this place that have been broken down, not because somebody did something heinous or terrible. It's been natural decay that just happens over time. But it is time, church, it is time to rise up and build. Let's reclaim the glory of God in this church. Verse 19 When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us. They despised us. They said, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? Listen, not only should you not be surprised when somebody is watching you and is not happy when you start to move forward for God, but you should not be surprised when they start to mock you and ridicule you either. Because if their just basic displeasure is not enough to slow you down, they will start upping the ante. And I love this response by Nehemiah. He answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Church, there will always be naysayers. There will always be people who don't like what you're doing. There will always be people who don't like what we're doing as a church. It doesn't matter. If God is in it, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. 2 Kings 6.16, Elijah said, looked at his, his servant and he prayed to God. He said, don't fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You ever think you don't have the resources? You ever think we don't have the resources? You have vastly underestimated God. Because those that are with us are far greater than those that are with them. So let's move to chapter three quickly. Verse one, Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and they hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and they consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Listen, the key to building, especially as a church, is that the leaders lead. When God wants to accomplish a work, he calls his leaders to lead. If you see a church that is calling for something, but the leaders are not participating at all, that is not a move of God. I can tell you, church, that as the Lord has laid this on my heart, I have sat down with your deacons, 
We have shared this together. We have discussed this together. I have shared this with your staff. We've talked about it. We've discussed it. And your leadership is ready to lead. And the work of God in rebuilding must start with the leaders. They, the high priest and his brethren priest, they rolled up their sleeves and they went to work. That's the beginning. But then there's another piece of this that has to happen. Look at verse 2. And next to Elishab, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of, the son of Emery built. And then in verse 4, and next to them, Mimoth, the son of Urja, he made repairs. And then next to them, Meshulam, the son of Baraki, he made repairs. And then next to them, Zadok made repairs. And then in verse 5, next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. And in verse 7, next to them, somebody else made repairs. And in verse 9, next to him, somebody else made repairs. And then at the end of that verse, next to him, Hananiah, he made repairs. And in verse 10 or 9, next to them, Raphi, the son of Hur, he made repairs. And then next to him, uh, the son of Hezbah, he made repairs. And then in verse 12, next to them was Shalom, the son of Halawesh, they made repairs. And then in verse 13, and by the way, in 12, you see that he and his daughters made repairs. It wasn't just the leader. It was a whole family. The whole family got involved. This guy and his daughters, they made repairs. And then in verse 16, after him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, they made repairs. Verse 17, after him, the Levites made repairs. And then later in that verse next to him, Hashabai made repairs. In verse 18, after him, the brethren made repairs. In verse 19, next to him, another group made repairs. And in verse 20, after him, Baruch, the son of Zabel, they made repairs. And in verse 21, after him, Merimoth, they made repairs over and over and over again, all the way around the city of Jerusalem, next to him, and next to him, and after them, and after them. Church, it does not happen without everybody being in it together. I called our men together for a few minutes after the service last Sunday. And I handed out a bunch of Lego pieces. And what do we do with Legos? We build. We build with them. And that's what they're for. Man, you're called to be builders. God has brought you here to be builders in this church. And this church will only be as strong as the men of this church who say, let us rise up and build. but you can't build much with one Lego block. And you know what? You can't even build anything with Lego blocks if they're scattered all over the place. You know how you have to build with them? They have to be next to each other. One has to be next to another, to another, to another, and they begin to connect and something gets built. Church of church won't get built if we're all out doing our own thing. A church won't get built that raises the, the name of God and lifts it high for people to come to Christ. It won't get built. If we're all out doing our own thing, it will only get built if we are beside one another, next to one another, after one another, with one another, and we're building together. God's ready to relight a fire in this church. But it's not just gonna take your leadership, it's gonna take you. Last week we began putting rocks on, on your chair, so I want you to take your rock. I want you to feel the weight of this last week 
As Nehemiah confessed, he felt the weight of what was not. But along with what was not was what should be. And I told you to feel the weight of what's missing in your life. Feel the weight of something that should be that is not. And as we ended the service, we had everybody come up and, and drop these in these spaces near the front of the church. This morning, I want you to remember what that thing was because most of those don't get fixed overnight. But in addition to that this morning, I want you to think, what's that small thing that I have to bring? What's that small thing that I have to offer God that I've always felt like it's not enough? It's not enough. I'm not qualified. But as we give that small thing to God, as the song says, little is much when God's in it. So this morning, rather than going by sections, I'm just going to open this up. There's going to be a time at the altar for people to pray. But I want everybody, everybody, there's there's no no staying in your place. Everybody needs to go build the wall together. But in semblance of, of what we read in Nehemiah 3, I'm going to ask our our leaders, our deacons, and our staff to join me as we begin. And after they lead the way, then take your rock to one side. Let's build together. Father, we give you praise this morning. God, may your name be lifted high in this place. May you have sovereign authority in our lives. May we feel the burden of what needs to be repaired in our own life. God, may we give what we have to you so that you can make it more. In Jesus' name.